Well, we're starting a new sermon series today that's going to take us pretty much into Easter. So we're going to be in this for a while. Uh, it's an expositional series, meaning we're going to go through uh, verse by verse through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And this is a series I've wanted to do for a while. Um, you know, when you read through different books, you see uh, kind of the, the approach often that's taken with these churches, and, and sometimes it's very theological. Other times, like this book, it's very pastoral. And it's the Apostle Paul talking to this Thessalonian church uh, you know, that he only spent a few weeks with saying, hey, you guys are doing really well. And these are the things that I see going on that you just need to keep doing and know that you're making this huge impact in the world around you. And through both of these books that were written pretty close together, we see uh, all of these, uh, these components of a hopeful and a healthy church. And so I was really thinking as we're starting this new year, and many people uh, have this sense of optimism, okay, new year, new try, uh, we're going to focus on health and focus on these goals. Maybe as a church, what are the ways that we can be more hopeful and healthy, not just that impacts us as a community, but really impacts the community around us? And, uh, and, and because of that, this series is going to be really intent on a lot of points of application. And, and the goal is that every Sunday we have a lot of things we can walk away with and apply uh, to our lives and to our community to make us a more healthy church. But one thing that's clear is that this church was one that, that, that really got um, the, the main point of why they existed, that they were kind of clicking on all cylinders and we see the effects of the gospel, how it worked in this community and in the world around them. And so today we're going to look at uh, all of the first chapter, which is just 10 verses. But we see that uh, it's revealing to us how God changes the world. And uh, really how God changes the world is different than how, how people typically try to change the world. So we're a people that really likes uh, systems and order and structure, uh, regulations, and, and how people typically try to change the world is through these broad sweeping measures, right? Through laws, through uh, regulations, societal norms. And we try to kind of force people under this large umbrella that might uh, uh, dictate how they should live, maybe how they should think. And really what that is for people is, is that's not change, that's control, right? That's coercion. And as a church, sometimes we can forget what the agent of change is. And so we're really more trying to control the people around us and, and force them into this uniformity. But really how God changes the world is not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And God changes the world one person at a time. And when God builds the church, he does it by totally transforming a person. And it's not so much this, this uh, control as much as this wholesale change. And that's what we see in this Thessalonian church, as we're about to read, is that God had completely changed these people from the inside out, and it had such a profound change, not only in their own communities, but a, a really around the world, as people are talking about this amazing change that God had done, that, that their attitudes, their affections, their interests, values, perspectives, their whole direction of life had changed. And people were taking note. 
And now it was becoming contagious in the people around them. That's how God changes the world and how it's different from how we would attempt to do so. It is done through his gospel, his message, his good news of hope. And the church that's built off of that now shares that gospel with the world. And one person at a time, the world is changed. So that's kind of a setup of what we're about to read today. And if you're not there already, I encourage you to open up now to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read all of the first chapter, uh, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out for you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has been known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What we read is really uh, what we just talked about, how God changes the world. And today we're going to break up the text kind of in two uh, major parts. And the first is that the gospel creates the church. The second is that the church then impacts the world with that gospel. But as we understand that first point, that the gospel creates the church, I think this is at the foundation of a healthy church, the one who sees things in the right perspective. That everything we do, the reason we gather, the reason why we're here to begin with, is the gospel of Christ, the good news that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to live here. And not just live here, but to die and to be raised from the dead. And there's such power in that death and resurrection that we can be forgiven of our sin and now live eternally with God in heaven. That's the gospel, the whole reason why we gather and sometimes we can forget that, and, and, and the church really becomes unhealthy when it's centered around other things. And when you ask yourself, you know, what is our measure for success as a church? When a church forgets that the gospel is the reason why we gather, then really two things come to mind for success. Meeting the budget and having more people in the seats than you did the year before. And no one's ever asking, did anyone's life change 
Was anyone transformed by the gospel inside of this church or outside of this church? And that's the whole reason the church exists, is the gospel. To embrace it, to live it, and to share it. The gospel creates the church. In verse 3, we see that there's this wonderful verse uh, shared that, that Paul is thanking, the Thess- uh, thanking God for the Thessalonians and that it's so evident that the gospel is alive in their life. And he's uh, really giving us this verse that displays what church people are kind of supposed to look like. That they have work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. And all of this, the faith, love, and hope, are rooted in Jesus Christ. And John Calvin is one who said that this verse provides a brief definition of what genuine Christianity looks like. There's three words that that you'll see in there that are commonly used together, faith, love, and hope, or other times faith, hope, and love. And these three together are the trio of Christian uh, virtues that really characterize a Christian's life. It becomes the evidence that there's something working in us bigger than ourselves. And so as we go through this sermon and this series, what I want to do is land on these um, application points, kind of light bulb moments of like, what does this mean for my life? And so if you're a note taker, I'm going to make it easier for you. I'm going to put them up and we're going to have six of these today. But the light bulb moment here is that when the gospel is embraced, the transformation of believer, of the believer should become evident. And then I underlined those three words in that verse, faith, love, and hope. And these are really the all-encompassing virtues of the Christian life. That it has everything to do with your past, your present, and your future as a Christian. And faith, or works produced by faith, really talks about your faith in action. That faith is more than just an intellectual pursuit. Having the, the facts of God live in your brain is just trivia, right? But faith without works, is dead, as we read in the book of James. That faith is just not an intellectual pursuit, but it's alive and apparent in the way that you interact with the world. And faith by itself is really a reflection of the past, which then in turn affects your present and your future. But faith is seeing all the evidence of God around you knowing the ways that he's worked in your life, knowing what he says in his word and the promises that you can draw from that. And now when you really believe in God and you know how he's worked, you have this faith that God hasn't changed or he hasn't gone away. That what he's done in the past, he'll do in the future. And so now faith changes the way you live. And you have these works produced by that faith. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see often this, uh, this nation of Israel having these incredible moments of seeing God deliver them or provide for them. And oftentimes, in just a few days, they, they forgot about it. Or they would have this moment of saying, yeah, I know he did all those things. I saw him split the Red Sea. But what if he doesn't do it again? And that's a life lived in fear. And it causes someone to live only for themselves. Faith is one knowing that there's something so much greater working for you. 
And so now you start working for him. The works produced by faith. And then we move into this labor prompted by love. And and this really speaks about what's happening right now. So having love for people and saying, you know, I wish the best for you, or I I, I really hope that that you're going to be okay, that's not love, that's sentiment. Love is also accompanied by action. It's accompanied by service. And the word here for love, again, is, is agape, which means that sacrificial uh, love that puts others above yourself. And Jesus told us that if we are to have genuine love for one another, then the world will know that we are his disciples. It really becomes the proof that we're for real and the evident change in the believers that you have love that prompts labor or service. And the last part of this is, is hope. And I'll talk on it briefly now because we're going to talk about it more later. But hope is always future-focused, right? And it's different than giddy optimism. Phil is, is very optimistic for 2022 of the Vikings. Okay, that's not hope. That's wishful thinking, all right? Hope is this, this unrivaled confidence, You know without a shadow of a doubt that God is going to do what he promised he was going to do. And it creates in us this ability to just keep going. Knowing that whatever circumstance we're in right now, God holds the future. And we can trust him, have confidence in him in that. And that is where we understand that no matter what, we can have hope. Because no matter what happens here, eternity with Christ is coming. And nothing on earth can take that away. This endurance inspired in hope. And all of these things are centered around the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the gospel is embraced, it's clear that there's a transformation in the life of the believer. And the next verse he, he shares is that there's uh, this gospel um, that, that it didn't come to them for just a random reason, but that, that they were loved by God and that God chose them to receive the gospel. And this really opens up kind of this, this long conversation we could have, a theological conversation about election. And, and where, where are we at? And, and just briefly, there's, there's two kind of extremes on this paradigm of thought. And, and one is that if it's all free will, all right, and God has no choosing of people, but he, he makes the opportunity available and everyone just has the opportunity to respond. The furthest extreme to that line of thinking is that everything is just kind of random, right? And we're just kind of bouncing around in the world. The other side of that extreme, where you get more into like predestination theology, is that everything is on a rail and that everything was chosen before the creation of the world. Everything you say, think, or do was, was planned by God, and so there's no free will. Right? Most people live somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, I do myself. I believe most people uh, understand that there's a healthy tension between predestination and free will, where both can exist in the same plane. But we get so focused on how our choice fits into it that we forget the whole point of a verse like this is whether you chose or God chose for you, if you're in Christ, it's because God loved you. The whole reason we're here is not because we're lovable. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he, by nature, is loving. And the, The whole point of the gospel in the church is one great act of mercy and love on a broken and a desperate people. 
And so this moment, uh, this, this light bulb moment is this. When we're the church, when we're a healthy church, we always have to remember, we didn't deserve the gospel. We didn't earn a place in the church. And if you're in Christ, it's because of God's great love for you. I mean, I always think if, if you're born in the right family or the right culture, if you have the, the right things or you haven't made too many of the bad mistakes that now you're allowed in the church. The reality is none of us deserve to be here. That we were chosen by God out of his great love. And I think that helps us with our outward focus as we look to make a difference in the world. That if you think someone else didn't deserve to be in this church for whatever reason, just remember, you didn't either. Okay? And God has brought many people into the church, including the man who wrote this letter, who were once a vilified enemy of the church, who worked actively against it. But God, as we just read, has the ability to completely transform lives and now make them an agent of the church. It's all done through God's power. And that brings us to the, the last point as we understand the gospel being the foundation of the church. We read, I'll reread verse 5 here. That because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. I think this is a reminder to us, first, that the gospel doesn't come by itself. And for the, for the Thessalonian church, uh, the gospel didn't just drop down on a parachute from heaven and fall on their laps. It was, it was there because Paul, Silas, and Timothy went there out of obedience to God, that they shared the message that God had entrusted to them. And now there is a church before there wasn't a church. And that's kind of how it works throughout the world today. Until someone shares the message, no one can receive it. And it shows really the power of the gospel. That it's just not just these facts or these historical figures, but it's the good news about God's love that can really transform not just a person, but, but a people. And now this Thessalonian church is, is thriving around this gospel. But the, the main point through all of this is we have to remember that the true power of the gospel comes from the Holy Spirit. And that's working through first both the person or the people who are delivering the message and receiving the message. And sometimes we either want to give ourselves way too much credit or way too much burden when it comes to sharing the gospel message. You might think, if, if I share the gospel and someone rejects it, it means I failed God. Well, that's, that's not true. Your only job is to share the message. It's the Holy Spirit who, ins- who empowers the message. Right? And you also think on the other side, if, if I've been one who has been fortunate enough to be a part of God's plan and, and many people have come to the Lord because I've shared with them that this is all my doing and my credit because I'm so wise and smart. Well, that's not true either. You can't take the credit for this because the gospel is one who's empowered by the Holy Spirit and the one who brings both the speaker and the receiver to a place of deep conviction. I think we have to remember that our job is just to be obedient and sharing. And the Holy Spirit takes care of the rest. It's the Holy Spirit who really empowers this message that it's more than just words. Now it's words with power, because one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to reveal truth to people. And there's many people who just re- reject these things because to them they're just silly words. 
But when the Holy Spirit is alive, it brings these words alive as well. And the words become truth. And then the Holy Spirit will soften the heart of those who receive the message. And now it allows this seed, this gospel truth, to be planted in them and to grow. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to life. And we can't forget that as it becomes the center of our church. So that's really the first part of this letter. The gospel is what the church is centered around. That it, it all is, it starts and it continues with that gospel message. And the second part is that the church now impacts the world by sharing that message through their words, through their actions, and their lives. And this, to me, uh, continues to be an amazing part of God's story. That he uses, like, like people, right, to, to change the world. He uses me and you, broken, imperfect people. But from the beginning, that's, that's how it worked, is that, is that Christ left. He, he had his disciples and said, I'm entrusting this to you, now go share. And now we are the ones who carry, we're the feet that carry that message, and we become Christ's ambassadors throughout the world. Where a church becomes unhealthy is when they forget about the people out there. All right, and I've read a lot of books over the years about church health and church growth. And one thing that's common between all of the authors, whether they're coming at it theologically or through experience as a consultant or through research, is that when a church becomes inside-focused, meaning they're more consumed about what's happening in here, with the people in here, than the people out there, they are on a slow march toward death. They will not survive as a church if they become inside-focused to the point that it's weighted higher in here than out there. The church has always been designed to impact the world with this gospel message that's alive in them. And Paul tells us later in this book that we need to work hard to win the respect of outsiders. He says in the book of Colossians that we need to be wise in the way we act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity to let our conversations be seasoned with salt and to be graceful. And that means everything we do, the words we share, the attitudes we have, the lives we live, becomes a testimony of God and the power of his gospel in us. So we read verses 6 and 7 that, that, these, that this church, remember these are brand new believers. This letter was written to them maybe six months after he visited, possibly a year. But within a year's time, they weren't Christians and then they were. And now, it's, now we read that they became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy and therefore imitators of the Lord. And now they're having this, this great impact. They're becoming a model to all the believers around them, to Macedonia and Achaia, to the north and to the south. And we see that, that they really welcomed this message, even in the midst of this suffering, through the joy of the Holy Spirit. The word that, that, that's used here for model is interesting. It's a, in the Greek, really, it, it, it talked about to, to have a model, really meant to, to have an imprint. And this is the word they'd use if you're making a coin and you use the hammer to kind of strike down on the metal. And you'd see kind of the outlines of the hammer that were in the coin. That was what a model was. It, it pointed people um, to the, it was really the impression of the original. And so when the Thessalonian church was a model, it meant it was pointing people 
to the imprint of their maker, that they were seeing Jesus through these believers, that they were so much like them that people could see Jesus as an imitator of Christ. I think the point we take away from this is that your imitation of Christ is going to have a, a much greater impact on others than you ever realize. That the way you conduct yourself, if people see you and say, you look just like blank, or you act just like blank, it's going to have a much greater impact than you could ever realize. You know, Gandhi is one who said, and at least he's speaking with a Christian who's trying to evangelize to Gandhi as a tall order, but someone tried. And he said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. I wish they were more like him. And that speaks to Christians who kind of failed in this regard. They, they didn't do a good job of being like Jesus. But when you do it well, it has a great impact on those around you. And to be clear, we're never going to be just like Jesus, right? We make mistakes. We're always going to fall short of that lofty standard. But there's a difference between occasional mistakes and negligent failure. And that's where I think we have that opportunity as a church to make this impact on the world by the way we conduct ourselves. We go on to read that, that because of this imitation of Jesus, that, that really this made the Lord's message ring out from them, not only in these, these regions around them, but, but everywhere. Their faith in God had been known everywhere. And there's kind of this tongue-in-cheek statement of Paul kind of saying, like, well, I don't, I don't really need to say anything about it because everyone's telling me about it. Of course, he was telling people about this message and about what happened. But it's this idea that everyone knew, and they're saying, hey, Paul, what did you share with them? Because I see the difference it made in their lives. And how do I get what they have? That there's this, this, uh, this uh, the way that they turned their lives around from these idols. Right? They did this 180, and they, they moved away from these idols, which is really anything that you give more attention and affection to than God. And we live in a land of idols where there's, there's tons of things that can be an idol for us. Comforts, pleasures, possessions, money, status, etc., etc., right? But when you turn away from those things, you turn to the living God and you give your life to them, it, it becomes evident. And now it's part of your reputation as a church and also as, as uh, it becomes God's reputation, right? What God is able to do in people. And that's the point of application here, is that your reputation, what people see in you, is going to travel further than you can ever imagine. So do everything you can to make sure that what people see in you points them back to the Lord. You know, our reputation as Christians speaks loudly, very loudly in our culture. And through a lot of the reading I've done, uh, through some researchers, I know there's a book called Unchristian I encourage you to read by Gabe Lyons. And, and really it just talks about the unchurched perspective of the church. And, and some of the big three uh, stereotypes, which now for all of us, these are things we may have earned or, or probably we didn't earn them, but we've inherited them from other Christians. But the big three stereotypes, one, is that we are a judgmental people that are exclusive. And so we decide who is and isn't allowed, and then we have these closed societies. Second is that we're greedy and focused only on money. And that's probably a lot from what you'd see of the televangelists. You can't go more than about four minutes without them asking for money, right? 
And so people assume that's all Christians. And third is that we're compassionless and selfish. And that means that we talk a big talk about being loving, but we really do little to actually help people. Now, I'm not saying that we've earned any of those stereotypes, but for the majority of people out there, that's what they believe about us. And so we have to work pretty hard to reverse that reputation. How? Work, inspired by faith. Labor, because of love. And enduring hope in Jesus Christ. These are things that are are part of our daily lives and our interactions with people that make a huge difference. And when people see us, right, as Christians, as Christ followers, they're going to look at the way we live and talk and walk and conduct ourselves. And it's going to build a reputation not only for us, but for Jesus himself. When you profess to be a Christian, people are watching you. And so be a model to them. Build a reputation that points them to the Lord. And this is the last point today. The last verse. We're going to talk more about this through the book, uh, of, of really the second Thessalonians 2, but, so I'll go I'll brief on it today. But another part that people were talking about is that these people in, in Thessalonia, they, they were ones that were under uh, persecution, Right? They were having these, these hardships that, because they were a believer, there's a lot of people that were not happy with them. And they had joy even in that suffering. But then they also had this hope, you see, that they're waiting patiently for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus. They're waiting for Jesus to return and rescue them from any coming wrath. And what we understand here is that the wrath that's being spoken about was not for them, the believers, it's for the world. Right, for those who rejected Christ. And Jesus is going to spare us from really the greatest hardships we could ever imagine. So whatever we're going through now won't compare to that. And these are people centered on this hope that no matter what I'm facing now, I know there's a better future in Jesus. And that had a profound impact on the people around them. Not just Christians, not just believers, but unbelievers. What we understand is that a person who lives with the expectant hope of the future testifies to the power and the promises of God. In other words, if you're a person who lives with hope, even in these situations that are difficult, and you say, everything is going to be okay because I believe that God is bigger than this problem and His promises will never fail. That's a powerful testimony to the people around you. We've gone through hardships over the last couple of years. And one of the biggest discouragements to me is to see preachers saying, you know what, if we don't get this one person elected, the whole church is over as we know it. If this law doesn't change, if these people don't see things this way, then the church is in jeopardy and the world is going to end. And really? Really we serve a God who raised his son from the dead. No one else is ever raised from the dead. The God who gives us so many promises and so many things we can hold on to the future, and then we're running around saying, well, if this one man-made thing doesn't happen, the world's going to end. It weakens your testimony as a Christian. So when you live with that hope, as we read in the book of Peter, that 
Those who see this in you are going to be asking you about it. And you need to always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope you have. When you live with that expectant hope, people are going to take note. And they'll ask. And it's a wonderful opportunity to share with them the gospel that changed your life. So as we wrap up today, I just want to come back to the original question. How does God change the world? Well, he does it one person at a time. Through the power of his gospel and through the influence of his church. It's all his. It's not us. He doesn't need us, but he, he chooses us. And he has the power to completely transform our lives to make us new. To make us part of this great big family and we're, in which Christ is the center and that Christians have an opportunity to be known by their hard work, their labors of love, and their hope in the future. Yeah, we have a reputation we can build. We can be an ambassador. Just the way we live our lives is a way to testify to the power of God. And to know that God uses this church not to be a social club, not to be a, a heavenly retirement fund, right? but this is to be a vehicle to change the world. And it's done through every single one of us. One interaction and one relationship at a time. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for uh, just the, the wonderful story uh, you've written. And it's, it's incredible to think that you trust us, that you empower us. Uh, but God, it is your truth and the reality we live in. And so I, I pray for all of us that we would come before you just with humble hearts and say, God, how can I be a part of this change? What are the ways that I can represent you better? And how can I share your life-changing gospel with those around us? It's something we should not keep to ourselves. So God, I pray for, for our church. I pray for all the churches, knowing that we are working in network and relationship with one another as part of your great global and eternal church. So God, remind us just the power that lives in us and among us as a church, knowing that the world can be changed and it can be done through your power and in your will. And so we pray this now in your Jesus, in your name, Jesus. Amen.